Hello, and welcome to Bergcast, the podcast where we explore the work of Nigel Neal in general and Quatermass in particular. This episode, in the company of journalist and expert cultural critic James Corey Smith, we're conversing on the subject of the 1979 Houston film's Quatermass, or Quatermass Conclusion. If our attempts to record our conversation were repeatedly interrupted, first by technical issues and then a global pandemic, it seems oddly in keeping with the story of societal collapse we're tackling, with its own troubled genesis. This is Bergcast, episode 20. Starting with the uh, the universal question of where um, where you first became aware of either Nigel Neal and or Quatermass, and was it through the the gateway drug of Doctor Who? <laughs> well, it was it was not merely through the gateway drug of Doctor Who. It was through the gateway drug of Doctor Who magazine, um, because the second time Quatermass and the Pit came out on VHS when it was re released as. 999 sell through which i think was 86 or 87 the original release was 86 i think so this might have been the uh, yeah so when it when it when it when it dropped down to the to sort of to the to that sell through price point um you know they just mentioned in doctor magazine as like this is i mean obviously didn't use this term but it's kind of like this is a sort of uh text for doctor who you know that this is a thing you should see and um, because of that, it was the thing that I saw. I mean, I rented it because um, my local video store in the village I grew up in had things like that to rent. And um, you know, I rented it for, it must have been 75p. And fast for one night. And that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when I saw it. And a few years later, I bought that VHS. Mm. I eventually saw the Hammer films on either BBC Two or Channel Four. But you, but you, but you saw the the serial, or the, at least the omnibus, the VHS wow. version. You saw the BBC version before yeah. you saw the Hammer version. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. The 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 because I would only have been nine or ten mm. when wow. when that happened. So I, you know, I wouldn't have been allowed to stay up and watch Hammer films. Um, whereas <laughs> PG rate, rating renting a PG rated. 1950s television serial whilst eccentric for a nine-year-old <laughs> in 1987 you know is, is not sort of considered dangerous um in a way that you know staying up and watching twins of evil or something would be and yeah and so then i saw the hammer films later and with the original bbc serials of experiment two one episode of quatermass two episode three i All think right. it is was shown on lime grove day was, yeah in 1991 mm-hmm. just right. bizarre random to show one episode of a six episode serial and i saw that i remember i taped it onto the end of my e180 that contained the keys of marinus because that was like where i knew there was space was the keys of marinus from the dr bsb dr who week yes it was yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> 30 years ago on this very night indeed <laughs> yes yeah good heavens so the, yeah the one episode which was um shown on uh, lime grove day um, and for years, I assumed that was the only episode of Quatermass 2 that existed because I knew that, because I was a Doctor Who fan, am a Doctor Who fan, um, that I knew about, you know, BBC lack of archive retention and so on. So it made complete sense to me that they might only have episode three. And it didn't make complete sense to me 
that they might only show episode three. So I just assumed that, that was the only episode that existed. But in um, fact... But in fact, it, it all existed. And so the rest of that serial and the two episodes of Quatermass, the Quatermass Experiment, I actually only saw when they, they came out on DVD, mm. which I think is about 2004, something like that. Five, right. I think. Yeah, five, In that sort of thing. Yeah. And in, the, in that gap, in that big, big gap between seeing episode three of Quatermass 2 and the rest of it was when I first saw the 1979 Quatermass, the Quatermass conclusion, the use of the film's Quatermass, however you sort of want to refer to it. And I actually didn't know that existed because, you know, it's the early 90s. It's not easy to find out this kind of information mm. until there was an article about it in TV Zone, which was a sort of Doctor Who magazine type magazine produced by the people who produced Starburst, whom I later worked for, strangely. Um, and... You know, they just ran an article about it saying, oh, it's been 10 years or 15 years or whatever since this was. And I just had no idea it existed up to that point. And based on that, um, I basically searched the county library systems video um, catalogue to see if any of the libraries that I had a card for had the 10-year-old VHS release of the short version in their... um, in their inventory and one of them did and so i got on a bus and went to redditch library in worcestershire and um rented it again probably for about 75p wow and that was the 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 theatrical cut yes and i i remember it came in a in a big heavy rental box without any sort of markings or anything you didn't get to take it away in a in in its kind of shop dress, but it was an enormous red plastic, thick red plastic um, box, which I still think is the biggest single cassette VHS box I've ever seen in my life. There, there, there was a phase where they were like really huge, wasn't there? there was sort of... and, they, and they were empty. They were like hollow plastic, thin hollow yeah. plastic. Yes. Abs- absolutely yeah. enormous. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's how I, discovered Quatermass and then about that time that was that was about the time that you had the Quatermass memoirs um on Radio 5 it was you know almost exactly the same time yes and I know that I saw the I know that I saw the Houston Quatermass before the Quatermass memoirs was made and transmitted because I remember quite liking the sort of cheeky there's cheeky bit of foreshadowing at the end of the memoirs yes you know, you don't want to go down to London. Um, I remember sort of quite enjoying that. So you would have been, what, 17, 18 when you first saw the conclusion or the, the first Well, no, I'm the, I'm, I'm, I'm the same age as you, so I would have been 15. So quite, yeah, so memoirs was, what, 95, 96? Whoa. Yeah, so no, I'd All right, there we go. Yeah, Mar- Mar- March, March 96. Are you mixing it up with Paradise of Death, do you think? Oh, I, I assumed it was about the same time as Paradise of Death. That was my, that's my strange thing. My, what was but, I doing in March 96? What was it, uni? Because my, my memory of listening to both of them is exactly the same, which is sitting in front of the big stereo, my dad's big stereo in, in my parents' old house and taping it on the tape deck. And because the memories are identical, I'm assuming that they were in greater temporal proximity than they were. Um, but actually, it's kind of, wow, three years. Amazing. Yeah. So do you remember then your first reaction to, to, 
to, to, to the Euston Film School readiness? Oh, just that it was incredibly bleak. But also, and I, and I think this is true, it's like I think in the mid-90s it was incredibly contemporary. Uh, you know, I think that um, we'll come into this a bit later, I think. Yes. But um, when... Um, like the, even like the the fact that you know you look at contemporary as in contemporary tonight's original broadcast talking about how the people in it look ridiculous because they they look it's meant to be the future after 1979 and they look like rejects from 1969 or, or whatever is that you know to be honest like you look at the people in you know sort of the the, the planet people if you if you give them a dog on a piece of string you could have met them at any level as gig in the mid 90s <laughs> i was literally about to say that <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it must be my, true <laughs> well one of my guiltiest um, guiltiest secrets is that in the mid 90s i did actually go to a level as gig <laughs> I, 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 yeah, no, in well, 1993, I, for my 18th birthday, I went to the Levelers gig, a Levelers gig, um, because it go. was in that brief moment where the Levelers were were cool. Lay, lay, lay. <laughs> well, lay, exactly. Lay. Good. Well, that's a <laughs> confession that's, that's, throw, that's thrown us off. That's what I'm But um, it has, uh, rather like the recording of this uh, particular episode of this podcast, has a long and troubled history, doesn't it? It's and even longer and more troubled, troubled history, history than the recording of this episode of this podcast. Because yeah, let's, let's some, just go through some, some recording doing. of this podcast oh, God, yes. where, we've, where we've got how we've got to here. I don't think we need to go too meta on that at this stage. <laughs> it's our fourth go, I think, this is, our, is the main this point. Is, this is our fourth go, and, and what makes it particularly ridiculous is that I live less than a mile from John. You are the close, by far the closest guest <laughs> I, I, I have. We have even attempted to record it twice in the room I'm currently sitting in. Uh, but it's still, still, it's taking, um, it's, ta- it's, it's, it's taking, so, and we have many versions of it now, rather than like the quote, the, the quote mass conclusion. But if memory serves, uh, was it not originally commissioned around the time that um, he was working on Stone Tape? It was part of his yeah. second well, days with the, with the BBC. Well, it's, it has an even longer history than that in some form. Mm-hmm. In the sort of way back in in 1965, um, Irene Schubeck asks Neil if he wants to write Quatermass um, for Out of the Unknown as a, like a single play, and he does seem to consider that for a while, and then says no. Then in 67, you've got the Hammer Pit, um, which is does is, is easily the best of those Hammer films, and does tremendously well, and everyone's happy with it, and obviously particularly happy with with Andrew Kerr, who's brilliant, and they ask him if he's interested in writing a new Quatermass as a film. And that's actually commissioned and and is sort of on Hammer's production slate, although it never seems to have been written. A completely then, new, a completely original yeah. film, yeah. And, and that and that evaporates. And the, the thing that makes me think that that might in some sense have something to do with the, uh, with the story that they eventually made as fourth Quatermass is how absolutely insistent Nigel Neal was that whatever he discussed with Hammer was nothing to do with this production at all. There's, a, there's several quotes over the years where he absolutely swears blind that it's a completely different story in such a way as to me just smells like kind of legal worries. <laughs> Basically a confirmation that it is in fact this, <laughs> this mm. thing. It, it, yeah. it, it feels like that, you know. There's one thing I've got here, an interview in Time Screen where, it's a, where the interviewer makes the mistake of suggesting that this began as the Hammer film, and he says, no, Hammer were 
never involved and it's capitalized in the magazine so did also when was it that hammer did approach him to have conversations about a potential fourth film so that was after after the pit so it was 67 68 so 60 okay and and yeah he but he he absolutely says that that happened but he always denied that it was anything to do with the story that he eventually ended up writing possibly because hammer might have had an interest in it um if it had been so do you think that when he was when he was commissioned in back in 72 the genesis of the story was already in place for what he well, I mean, wanted to do even even if it even if it wasn't even if it wasn't a sort of going back to the hammer film that never happened the some elements of the story were already in place because as you, you already had um uh, wiser heads than mine um on talking about the big big giggle uh, the um repeatedly abandoned uh, 1960s neil story about a suicide cult which a teenage suicide cult which he was repeatedly clear in later years was part of the genesis of of the the Quatermass project i mean i know you sort of covered that in, in more detail but very briefly that was commissioned as a six-part bbc series written then abandoned and turned into a long bbc play which then the plays department decided they didn't like because of the subject matter um neil bought it back off them, tried to get it made as a film. And then um, it, was, it was John Trevelyan himself said, you can't make this as a, as a, a film in Britain. And Neil apparently at the time was very unhappy, but later said that he'd come to the conclusion that actually he was right. And that it was that all these people who stopped him doing this thing were actually right. And that he shouldn't ever have done it, which I think is very interesting, but elements of that story, which, I believe would have been not science fiction and more sort of socially realistic um, do, according to absolutely everyone, find their way into the Quatermass serial, which is commissioned by the BBC, I think, in late 1972 uh, by Ronnie Marsh, um, who's just become the, the head of drama and which is meant to be written as four times 52 minutes, which is essentially what it is in the finished version, delivered in early 1973, and is going to be produced uh, by Joe Waters, who at the time was the producer of Dixon of Doc Green, which of course was Ronnie Marsh's oh. own old job in the 1950s. Why, um, why 52 minutes? Was that was a, a nod to overseas sales to try and get it on, com on commercial oh, well, stations? They mostly are. Um, 70s BBC dramas are mostly 52 minutes. Um, that, that's just the... It gives you a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end of an hour um, for trailers and overrunning and so on. Like, you know, the first three series of Blake 7, they're, they're all 51, 59. You know, it's a standard BBC length of the era um, rather than something eccentric. Um, so I don't think there's anything unduly complex about, about that aspect. That then falls apart again out of, uh, due to cost, um, amongst other things, uh, although it is completely written. And, and model footage is filmed, isn't it? Model footage, footage is shot, is, yeah, yeah, which no longer exists, which is a bit yeah. of a shame. But Bernard will keep um, working on the... It's the pans across space. Or, or yes, space yes. Sequence, isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, people have actually commented that they find the thing of Joe Waters being the producer um, strange because... Dixon Dot Green has this reputation for being very cosy. Mm. But um, if you watch Joe Waters produced episodes of Dixon of Dot Green, they are not cosy. They're not cosy at all. 
you know, the, the earliest surviving colour episodes, which are sort of the ones you can get on DVD, come from that period. And I mean, there's, you know, they are quite, they're not totally a million miles away from, from the subject of, of this discussion. I mean, there's uh, the, the first one, the, the first one that exists, I think it's called Eyewitness, which is all on film, is set sort of in the, a ruined, largely set in a ruined industrial estate and is about an investigation into the death of a policeman who died on his beat, who turns out to have drowned himself in a fit of existential angst. Wow. Um, I think it's called Eyewitness. It's written by Eric Pace, but um, if that's not the title, it's, it is the first existing colour episode. And no, it's not called, it's, a, it's not called Eyewitness. Eyewitness is not one. It's called Wasteland. Um, and and it's a really really good piece of television and I mean there's a whole there's a massive discussion to be had about the kind of caricaturing of of, of Dixon a a program that definitely evolved as it went on Um, yeah that doesn't sound like the blue lamp (laughs) (laughs) no it really doesn't um, it sounds more like the black and blue lamp But no, and you know, so that is just an incredibly bleak piece of television, which I absolutely recommend. Um, uh, not cosy at all, and and you, you watch that and you think actually Joe Waters would have done a good job. Mm-hmm. I can see, I can see why Joe Waters was given these scripts. Um, so just my uh, going into going into bat for early seventy sticks in there, which is something I always like to take an opportunity to do. Um, but then it was cancelled. Uh, but maybe due, due to cost, sorry, is there like a camera script surviving of the BBC well, production? Well, I, I don't believe that any scripts exist. Um, uh, I don't believe any scripts exist for that version. But Neil has always, was always, again, pretty clear that it wasn't written again. You know, um, he amended the scripts that the BBC had had, but he didn't write it again from the start, from a the same idea they were later drafts of the same scripts and with the main differences being that, that it was opened up because Houston were going to shoot it all on film or on location so there would not have to be any studio work at all no sort of no, no vt and the other thing was the the original end to episode three was set at stonehenge and in the Houston version it's uh takes place at wembley stadium and the reason for that is that between the conception of the serial and its production, Stonehenge had gone from being a place you could wander around for having paid a couple of shillings to get onto the hill to a place where you sort of had to queue because it had become part of, very much part of the zeitgeist um, that ultimately actually the programme itself was reflecting. But just filming at Stonehenge was prohibitively expensive because you'd have to reimburse the uh, reimburse the the trust that runs it for all the lost custom and you would take days and days and was there never any 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 of the fault to just do it at Avebury or the Royal Wright Stones or somewhere 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 in Scotland? I think it was the the sheer scale. I mean, you know, Stonehenge is enormous in a way that uh, I mean Avery sort of is a very different look, isn't it? I mean, I think it's very noted. I think it's very noticeable that um, I mean the the stone circle in the production is is built. It's not yeah. really, you know, it's, 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 it's 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 art department constructed. But the the title sequence for the program 
contains photographs of Stonehenge, mm. not Avebury, not the one they built for the production, but Stonehenge itself, because that sort of the two tall, very straight stones with the sort of cross beam across the top is this sort of, it is, it is this incredible image and they want to sort of impress that on you even though they don't use it in the show, you know, it's sort of, so yeah, I, I think something big, really big um, was needed. Um, the, apparently the, the, the Stonehenge cross was part of the reason for the collapse of the BBC version as well. So Euston went into that knowing that there wasn't probably really a stone circle that um, they could do that in, that they needed to come up with something completely different. Studio. All right. You saved my life. Oh, hardly that, sir. Oh, I think you did. I simply had no idea. None at all. It's bad. They don't tell you. They're just bland about it. They call it urban collapse, and it's nobody's fault. Yes, but the savagery. You should see Paris or Rotterdam. Little suburban streets with, with dead bodies. <laughs> well, I'd never believed it like came down here this week. Where do you live? <laughs> Quite out of all this. In a cottage by a lock in the west of Scotland. Oh, oh it's dreadful. It's dreadful. Look, don't stay. Go now, if you like. I'll help you. Try and get you on a train. You mean, uh, walk out on the west? Oh, they don't care. So why should you? Uh, uh, no, um, I'm looking for my granddaughter. Have you got the relationship? But there was no... Sorry, there was no question of of the BBC doing it all on film, was there? Um, I don't believe so, no. I can't imagine. It's... Well, um, certainly, when he when he talks about the BBC version, Neil talked about there being studio and talked about um, VT. So, okay. presumably, that was that was his. Unless he was misremembering that, that's the that would be the conception. Um, I mean, very few BBC things are all filmed in seventy three well, anyway. Not to, I mean, even the Stone Tape flip side is all VT, even the vacation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. You see, those those some of those Dixons are are all film, um, but that's uh, partially around Jack Warner's age. Okay, we use it as well. Or, or that um, spearhead from space, which is all film because yeah. of the circumstances. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because there, there was no studio space available. Um, yeah, there's a handful of play for today's that are, that, are, that are on film generally with directors, but yeah, that's yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's not. It's yeah. So yeah, it certainly isn't isn't isn't, isn't the norm. Sorry, Karen. Yeah, and so the, and apparently the reason again, according to Neil, that the Thames version happens at all is that someone who he never named uh, left the BBC and took the scripts for the Council BBC version with them, and then they went to work at Thames. And so there came a point where Thames wanted something, and this person said, "Well, I've got the scripts to the BBC, the Council BBC Quatermass. Maybe that will do." And it was red, and Thames liked it, and decided to buy it and do it through Euston. Um, so, someone who we're not sure who they are left the BBC, started to work yeah. at Thames, took this, presumably the options have expired for, for yes. whenever, whenever this is. Well, the, sometime. well, the BBC. Uh, I mean, I don't know what is the case now, but certainly in the sort of civil service organisation 
era of the BBC, the standard window for uh, purchase to production is two years. Right. So it would have expired long before um, anyone at Euston ever saw it. The guy just um, took the script because presumably they liked them and thought they could get them done. done yes. So then, it's, so the negotiations start again from scratch for, yeah. uh, with the exception that we have completed scripts already. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and apparently key in this is obviously is Verity Lambert is credited on it. Um, she came into Euston um, in I think 76 or 77 and part of her brief, part of the reason she was hired or why she was moved there was that everything Euston had done, whilst generally very good, was very blokey, very macho, very sort of... They did the Sweeney and things, the, didn't they? The yeah. Sweeney and yeah. the, the revamped version of Special Branch and, and yeah. so on and so forth. That's, that's the thing. And it's, it's to do something that changes perception. She's there to change perceptions of Euston films and she needs a signature production which will change perception, which is what is decided that Quatermass will be. But she was at Thames at this point, was that right? Yeah. yeah. And and Euston is a Thames subsidiary. Yeah. So, um, and it's um, incredibly expensive. It's budgeted at 300k an episode, so that's 1.2 million pounds um, a, a for the whole thing, which is a lot of money at the time, a lot of money. And it's all going to be shot on 35mm not 16 millimeter with or an, one location with an eye to a theatrical release with an eye to a theatrical, theatrical release because yeah. it just because the idea is it justifies the spend yeah okay um and and it is just going to be this incredibly expensive um prestigious project um and that's what they do and that's what they get what was the idea i mean if you're going to um try or try and take use and films away from being blokey punching up and chasing and capris um presumably those weren't necessarily had those films the sweeney or, or the special branch they didn't have theatrical releases did they they were done were they done on 16 millimeter for, for, for they, were, they were done they were done on 16 but right. by this by this point um Euston has done a theatrical sweeney film of the first one which is sweeney exclamation mark which is done between seasons and that's a big that's a big hit, and the Sweeney Two is going to come along at the end of the last series of the Sweeney, so they are they are already they've already put their toes in right. um, with regard to this kind of thing, and they know that you know the Sweeney made made them a lot of money, and it's also it's the era, isn't it, of um, you know sitcom films. Where yeah, te we're, television yeah. television companies make films of sitcoms, or mm. film companies make films of sitcoms under license, and bafflingly, people pay lots of money pay money to go and see not as good versions of things they can see free on the buses. Porridge, but on the buses, Porridge film is excellent. But I think yeah, that's yeah, but it's also it's also like eighty, isn't it? It's nineteen eighty. The Porridge film. It's a little bit later. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, but and this, but yeah, like, um, are you being served or Man About the House or Rising Damp? Which is even worse. There's no Richard Beckinsale in, in that. But isn't that partly because um, there aren't repeats? There's the, there's the ephemeral. Nature, there nature is, there is, but, I, but ITV sitcoms are sort of 13 episodes a year every year and sometimes two series a year. I mean, these programmes are omnipresent mm. and people still pay money to go and 
to go and see them at the cinema. It, it, it's 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 a strange thing, but but people do do that. Um, I have no idea why. I mean, I I like a couple of those films far more than is sensible, but I, I don't know why. I don't know why you would go. I don't know why you'd go and see them. I understand why you'd make them as a writer or as a, an actor, right? The idea that film is permanent. You know, I can see why if you're the lead writer on Man About the House, you think, as you say, there are no repeats, that this very, very successful thing is not going to go on. You know, it's not, it, it, it will evaporate, it's ephemeral. But if we make a film, the film will turn up on television for the rest of time because that's what happens with films. I understand that motivation and, you know, it um, doesn't anticipate the way that old television is available now. You know, there was not something not anyone, yeah. some, not something anyone ever, ever, ever anticipated. You know, so I think, you know, there is the idea that you make the film to, to lay down a marker for your series, I think, but you know, they do make money. There is a, there is a big thing at this exact point in history of, films of television programs making money so why not why not give that a spin so once verity lambert and is it ted ted charles have sort of taken the production was it fairly easy for to for them to to get nigel neal on board i even though he has he thought about this production in in five or six in five or six years he's now has he, he not, just not, seemed, not he seems to he seems to have dived into it fairly quickly and fairly easily i mean he'd just done He'd been working with different ITV companies anyway at that time. You know, we just sort of had beasts and things. And he was, he's in a period where he's cheesed off with the BBC mm. as a lot of um, those kind of single player dramatists are at that point in the mid 70s because of sort of changes to play to today and, and sort of censorship and things like that. Mm. So, you know, probably pushing on open door. Everyone likes to work, don't they? And um, yeah, it seems to come together pretty quickly. Uh, although we probably come to this in a bit, but obviously Neil had his complaints about the about the finished production, mm. some of the casting and so on. Maybe the and lead he, casting, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and he seems to have never particularly enjoyed the logic of the long and short versions that you needed to have these four scripts, which you already knew when it was when they were written which scenes could be taken out to produce a short version for theatrical release. So it, it's not a question of editing down the finished serial to find the film version. It's a question of shooting the serial, knowing the shape of the film version as well, which is why there is one scene in the theatrical version, which is not in the, the episodic version because when they take out a huge chunk of episode three, they need a scene that covers some of that material. So at the same time, they shot an alternative scene so that it could be dropped in in place of almost all of episode three in that short version. Yeah, you have um, both the the scene, there's the scene, uh, he isn't kidnapped in, yes. uh, in, in, the, it's in the second, at the end of the second episode, isn't it? Was the start yep. of the third episode? It's, it yeah, is it's both. Yes, both. Yeah, he's not kidnapped. He, um, it's like he just goes. Yeah, which then makes that scene look a bit like a filler. But there's, 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 there's I appreciate what he can do. So that when um, Annie 
phones the uh, the government to say that it was phoned in, they have to reshoot that scene because because yeah. Quatermass has to talk to them. To, yes, he has he, to be there rather yeah. than her saying, "Well, you can't speak to him. He's not here. I don't know where he is." Yeah, he's under it's some quite, cars. It's 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 quite ingenious, but I mean, Neil's on the record on the record of repeatedly saying. I came to the conclusion we were either going to bloat the long one or murder, murder the short one, and perhaps we wound up doing both. Um, it, it is a shame to lose the sequence where he has the chat with the perfumer. Um, and even, thus, if, even if it does go on for a week. It, okay, yeah, it is. <laughs> I appreciate it's too long, and a lot, of, a lot of episode three is too long for the obvious reasons that it gets cut in, in the theatrical version. Nevertheless, the, it just... Within the pacing, it makes more sense for 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 Quatermass theorising of the nature of the energy, uh, rather which is rather rushed, as quite a lot of um, conclusion. The theatrical version of conclusion is rather rushed when he decides he has to basically fake uh, a, a a human musk, but it it seems more organically uh, um, woven into the script. As of course, yeah. in 2020, we have our own fake human Musk called Elon. We do. But, um, There's a lot of parallels with 2020, which I think... <laughs> There's so much we're going to get out of this. But, um, but also, what isn't, what isn't rushed is it then is finished and it isn't transmitted because ITV's on strike. So ITV, uh, so it, it's originally meant to... Because it, it was filmed in the summer of 78, right? Yes, yeah, and when was it? And when was it planned to be transmitted? It's early seventy. It appears to be early seventy nine. They start talking about it. And they start advertising it, and then it gets put back. And then ITV goes on strike. Um, ITV doesn't go on strike it, until September, though, does it? Or was it? Oh no, ITV's on strike for a really long time. Right. Okay. It's. Uh, I think it's second week of August. Second. Oh right. Okay. So, so. It's. It, it, it's. Um, but you. But you wouldn't launch this in the summer anyway, would you? No. No. Been also playing out. But but there have been there have been isolated mini strikes and bits of it, it, ITV is in a mess for the whole of 1979 even before it um, before it goes off. So I mean I appreciate people who listen to podcasts like this tend to know things like the 1979 ITV strike. But just in case there was a protracted um, strike which took the whole of the ITV network off air for months, leaving. Um, BBC One and BBC Two, the only channels, and ITV was literally just a caption card that said, we're sorry, we'll be back eventually. Um, what was the and, nature of the strike for those, for those that don't know? Um, I think it's just pretty straightforward um, conditions and um, pay, it's paying conditions, isn't it? The You've had periods of inflation shock um, from really starting from four or five years earlier yeah you've got inflation um, running at like 15 16 percent haven't you for, yeah for, for, um, for, for, for several years um although that i mean that's an improvement on sort of 73 is when it really when inflation is really nuts but it's still not good and i think part of it is that there was a, a blanket agreement at the bbc in at the end of 77 which um led to better paying conditions for everyone in similar jobs at the bbc across the board so inevitably that leads to it's now not as good to work for ITV in the same jobs as it is to work at BBC. Are you going to match this? Um, you know, and, and it, it, yeah, I think it's from the first or second week of August until... Unless you're more convoys. Sorry, that's it. 
<laughs> was it 78 they went to? Mm, yeah. I mean, the thing is, of course, is, you know, ITV, it's counterintuitive um, in some ways, but ITV always historically had vastly more money than the BBC because yeah. whilst the BBC's income is guaranteed, was always guaranteed. Um, it's over it's such a huge range of things, surely. And yeah, but, all, but also just even in absolute terms, ITV's advertising revenue historically always just unimaginably greater than the the um, okay. than the license fee yield in, in every I mean I I wouldn't put my hand on my heart to say every year this century um, I, I, it's, it's, it's likely but certainly until the end of the last century no question just no comparison to all ITV always has more money always always have more money uh, which is how they got more more wise they mm. just offered them more money Sadly, they didn't um, go to Eddie Braben as well. He didn't want any part of that. No. But that's that's a separate. That's just, that's a whole. It's my that's a whole extra podcast. That's a different podcast. Yes. <laughs> so about ten times throughout throughout this, I've been going. There's definitely another podcast in that some in that somewhere. And and so when the ITV ITV strike eventually comes to an end, which is essentially by um, the network folding to to the demands because they don't really have any option because they've been off the air for eight weeks, ten weeks, whatever it is. Um, and then they rush back and they have a, an essentially an emergency service, which is run out of London rather than being properly regional, which is run by Thames and which is just meant to get ITV back up and running, earning advertising revenue as soon as possible. So Thames is essentially running a national ITV Yes, in the first instance, they are they are networking. Uh, although everyone gets everyone gets their shows in, it's not, it doesn't dominate um, the schedule for the for the first night of I. Sorry, Quatermass is is the first episode of Quatermass is, is the centerpiece of the first night of of ITV after it comes back and uh, ignoring news programs. Um, the schedule for that evening is Crossroads, which is from ATV. You know, obviously, it was a huge draw in those days. Mm -hmm. um, then it's an episode of the Muppet Show uh, with special guest Dudley Moore, who obviously become a film star by that point, but also yep. was kind of um, greatly loved in Britain for things he'd done in the previous decade. Mm -hmm. Then Coronation Street, uh, obviously, then as now behemoth of, of mm -hmm. independent television in this country. Uh, then everyone's favourite paralysingly strange game show, Three, Two, One. The special, special one-hour episode of Three, Two, One, just to really fry your brain. I, I um, have all sorts of folk horror. Kind of <laughs> oh, the, the, cl the clues, the clues are like t a terrifying, ter terrifying pagan place. riddles. Of little um, we, we knew a couple who actually went on Three, Two, One. <laughs> really. Um, in the in the early eighties, they were the parents of um, someone I was at school with. And they won. They they won the car. I mean, they divorced shortly afterwards, probably because that's what success. That's what success. Three, two, one. But they 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 actually won. But I I remember it was a bizarre show because you ha you would have um, pop acts and um, dancing dancing ladies in the middle of in the middle of the game show rounds and things. And Dusty Bin with those strange empty eyes. Do you, do, you think they, do you think they actually split up because there's always a price in Sympathetic Magic? Do you think that's the real reason? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no, that's more or less exactly why. Um, 
Yeah, no, it's it, it, weak. Weird choke. It is a three, two, one. I dead, dead, dead. Strange kind of. I, I, I remember at roughly the same time reading a collection of children's horror stories, which had more or less a kid who was on the TV and and basically had their soul removed by the camera, and and watching three, two, one, and thinking, yes, that's how Ted Rogers did it. That's it's a magical it's 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 it's, it's a magical sudra like the thing it's like alistair crowley couldn't have done better frankly so we move from an hour's and then rounding, to unspecial. Rounding, out, rounding out the night was quite was, was, was quite a mess so I've, I've just checked this is the 24th of october yes oh, yeah that's that's yeah, so a, so they're, they're off air for months for quarter yeah. quarter of the year Jesus. I, I, I think it's. I think, I'm pretty sure it's the second. It's. It's definitely August. It's the first or second week of August. Right. Yeah. Um, so. As as with all things in the history of late uh, 20th century British television, it comes back to Doctor Who because you can actually see the summer repeats of Doctor Who um, go from being watched by five million people to being watched by eleven million people, uh, literally overnight because suddenly there's no ITV and so people are just watching Dot 2 from 18 months before because it's the only thing on television. Mm. Um, apart, apart from whatever the OU are doing on, on or Malcolm Muggeridge on, on, on BBC 30. Uh, I, um, I mean, I, not, not specifically this, but I did actually look up a load of the programmes that were on BBC 2 during the period when ITV was off air and... You, know, you can sort of see, I mean, I think Shoestring is a very good program, mm. but you can see how Shoestring manages to be watched by 23 million people <laughs> um, when the thing that, things that are on BBC Two are things like, there's a program called Mr. Smith's Indoor Garden, which is literally a series about how you um, grow pot plants on a windowsill if you live in a small flat, which... To me, I think is exactly the kind of thing that public service broadcasters should be doing. But I also would much rather watch Trevor Eve solving a murder. Yeah. She talked about the family people. I, I think she wanted to belong. Uh, look, dear, you're, you're about her age. Take, take some of these, please. Please. What are you? Let's go. Wait a minute. What are you? Cops? <laughs> no. What then? What kind of an old man are you? Well, I'm... I was a scientist. Leave them. What kind of scientists? Some are worse. Space research. Rockets. Yes, that's worse. Rockets make holes in the skin of the world. Did you know that? They tear it open. Is that what you believe? Come on. No, 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 wait. What does it mean to be planet people? What do you believe in? You wouldn't understand. I might. We're going there. To one of them. To another planet. Come on, they're mad. We are not mad! Then tell me, where in the whole solar system where you won't get frozen solid or fried alive? Not there. Oh, I'd give you up. Among the stars. Okay. Well, you might find a planet. Only trouble. It'll take you 100,000 years to get there. By his rocket. Well, how else? Come on, let's hear it. By meditation? By occult transference? Come on, where's the launch pad? I want to know. This is one liftoff I really want to see. Yeah, although I'm seeing now that sort of thing will get shown at, at sort of after the one show at eight o'clock on BBC One. Yes. Yeah. That, yes, that's, absolutely. That's now a, that's now a, a, a fixture filling lifestyle show. 
Um, yes. Not a not a Rethian alternative in <laughs> So of the story itself, um, what lessons do we think we learn from from uh, from the the realization of 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 of, 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 of Mass? Is it? I mean, you say that you thought, on the one hand, Nigel Neal was never was 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 never happy with it, particularly the casting. But is 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 what is what we see? Does that does that does that justify Neil's Neil's doubts? Do you think? Maybe I mean, they're... I I mean, I, I think it's brilliant. You know, the, the reason why um, uh, the reason why I said to you when you mentioned it on Twitter, um, you, you were looking for somebody to do this is you, the reason that I want want to come here and talk to you about it is because I think it's brilliant. I really, really do. Um, so do you prefer it to the, the BBC serials? I, they're so different mm. that I kind of think, I think exact points of comparison are um, uh, uh, not impossible, but almost irrelevant. You know, the, yeah. the, the three BBC serials are implicitly set in the then present, you know, they're about a, 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 a man in the prime of his life attempting to go beyond and, and, and to, to discover and, and he's sort of questing. It's a scientific hero mm. in this sort of old pulp term. It's a science hero. And the 1979 Quatermass is a post-apocalyptic nightmare story set in an imaginary future about a retired man whose time has gone trying to find the only other surviving member of his family. It, it, it's, I think the story suits Quatermass. I think the fact that it's Quatermass story gives it weight in the same way that um, the, the Wrath of Khan is a very good film. And the Wrath of Khan would be a very good film if it did not have the cast and characters from a beloved television series of 20 years before in it. But the fact that it does just gives every single thing that those characters do more weight. You know, you, you don't need to have Spock and Kirk's friendship explained to you because you've seen it. But also it matters more as well because there's a lot of stuff in The Wrath of Khan because these characters weren't those characters and these characters didn't have the depth that they have in The Wrath of Khan. But it's because you remember them from 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. It gives that them the weight. gives it weight. Yeah. yeah, and whatever happens to Lightly Lads is better than the Lightly Lads because the the the, the, the and it's better than it's better than that series would be if it was just called Whatever Happened to Us and starred Alan Armstrong and name another Northern British actor of the early 1970s. It would still be a brilliant programme, but it, it has that weight because you can see the, 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 the years on those actors' faces. And, 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 and I think the same thing applies with this. I think the fact that it is this kind of legendary character does, does assist it, does help, you know, it makes it, it does make it better, but I also think in some ways it's very different to the others. And it seems to me that particularly, you know, literally with the case of the big, big giggle, this is something which in some form Neil wants to make and he winds up sticking his biggest character in it because that's the way to get it made. Yeah. Do you think it was always his plan to kill Quatermass at the end of it. Well, that, that's that's what that's what he said. You know, that, again, that's something he said over and over again. And 
this time not in a way that makes me think the opposite is true. Um, <laughs> and it does, make, it does make sense because, again, as we discussed earlier, he spent a long time being asked to do Quatermass again. Do you want to do it again? Do you want to do it again? And if you do the end of the world or the end of Quatermass or Quatermass at the end of the world, um, you, you shut down that question, really, don't you? Mm. He was less sure on the casting decisions, wasn't he? At yes. least, at least the major casting casting decisions. Well, he's been he was very critical of uh, both John Mills and Simon Hawkendale, but with all due respect to Nigel Neal, which is you know substantial, I don't agree. I, I I think Mills is brilliant. I think again, I think his casting adds weight because you've seen him in great propaganda war films of, of the 1940s and you associate him with, you know, he has his own longevity, which he brings to it. And I think there is a, a fragility and a humanity in his performance, which yes. is, I, I, I think it's wonderful. I, I think he's, I think he's brilliant. And I'm not going to commit such gross, sort of gross act of Les Majestés that I sort of accuse the writer of missing the point of his own, um, of his own serial, but I think he might have missed the reason that that casting decision was made. You know, I think that that fragility is is important, um, and, and I think he's wonderful. Um, I have no idea why he didn't like Simon McCorkendale, so I think Simon McCorkendale is very good. Uh, in, I, think into, he, in, I think he hits that. I think Simon McCorkendale works here. I think Simon McCorkendale, um, and I hope he's never listening to this. Um, he's, has, dead. He's, he's dead. He's dead. Oh, he's dead. All right, he's that's dead. fine. He's never going to listen to it then. <laughs> no. um, but he's a bit of a ham. But in this, he has to overact because you've got to present someone who's actually basically driven right to the edge. Oh, it's and, a terribly, terribly affecting. Um, it is. And it's um, affecting. And it, 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 basically, it works towards his talents. It, 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 he, it, it basically plays to what he's good at. I and, I, and I think he's I think he's very good at the rage as well of the last rational man you know, the, yeah. the, the, par the paradox of being the last rational man in the world and that makes you angry all the time which is something a lot of us can sympathize can, can, with with a certain degree, so, a certain degree of self-regard very, very 2020 Simon I think is, is great in this and not totally dissimilar yet subtly enough to um, to his his turn in in, in baby um, he's got he's got the he's got the anger uh, here. He's in a far more justified position here. He has a far more healthy relationship with his wife. Yeah, I mean, um, here he's sympathetic, he's, basically. Yeah, but he's, but he's, he's still he's, he's, he's still a bit reductive. He's still like he calls the, the energy evil. It's st he's still uh, um, over obviously overridden for, 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 for concern for his family of like wanting to wanting to get wanting to get uh, Bobby Keller out of the way rather than helping people in the first instance. There's that there's that more focus. Uh, uh, lack of lack of lack of sympathy. He's the driven. He's the driven scientist, but he's not a complete arsehole. Uh, but I yeah. think he, I think he does it really well. Just just sorry. This is what um, Neil said to, to to interview with Andy Murray when he was writing when he was writing the book on on John Mills. He said I wasn't keen on the casting. So John Mills, whom the Americans wanted, isn't a commanding actor. He's fine in lower ranks roles. But he didn't have the authority for Quatermass. On the one I mean, hand, 
uh, saying John Mills lacks lacks commanding presence is a is a big, is a big ask. It is. Yeah, yeah. If you've watched films, if you've watched John Mills's film career. Secondly, one of the things I think that always shines, and again, as you said, with the Les Majesty, we're we're essentially mansplaining um, Quatermass to 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 to, to his character. Mansplaining, very good. Um, That Quatermass, as a man who's always beyond beyond his limit he's dealing with something that's outside of, hu- of human experience and desperately trying to do his best in a nearly impossible situation that's as true i think here as it is as it is in the 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 B, the, 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 the bbc serials and i think and also I, also the thing is, is he's a man whose authority has gone yeah as well isn't he and, and you know the the script could have does emphasize that you know he's he's he is no longer in a commanding position he is just one old man being interviewed on television and then wandering through a sort of like post-apocalyptic hellscape. He does, he has, he has no resources. He has no backup. He has no position. He has no power. He's just, he's just one lost old man who, well, as they say in the first episode, didn't he used to be somebody? Mm. But through his, through the connections he makes and through the force of his argument gets from being, from being nearly beaten to death on the street. To talking to the cabinet, yes, within, and that's to see that potential still lies within him, but yet him being, you know, presumably late seventies or, or whatever, and just you know, wanting nothing to do, having having his having his time gone, not dissimilar to you know, Curtin in in Poirot is now being yeah. seen as a, as a as a joke. Now he's he's old and past it, and the other 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 things have taken him. Also, this is what um, sorry Neil says about. Uh, McCorkindale and um, Barbara Kellerman. Simon McCorkindale should never have been cast as the last rational, intelligent man in the world. We had him in Beasts playing an idiot, and he was very good at that, and Barbara Kellerman just smiled all the time. Oh. I mean, we sort of talked about, about McCorkindale. I, I, again, I think that's unfair. I also, I think it's, I think it's simply inaccurate to say that Barbara Kellerman smiles all the time. You know, whatever yeah. you might, th- whatever you might think of a performance, it's inaccurate to say that it's one sort of full of, full of smiles. I like, I, I like Bob Kellerman. I, I um, she's a peculiar performer, but I think I find it. I think I think cameras like her, mm. and I think that when when she's, even though often things that she does are, might be counterintuitive, um, they do tend to have a logic and and. You know, I, I sort of, I find what she does very effect again, very very affecting. Um, yes, uh, there's, she's there's a sort of... she's missed, I think, halfway half halfway through it. But you feel you feel her death really. Yes, you do yeah. really do. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think I think there are some choices that she makes that are odd. But the older I get, the the more I appreciate them. You know, I think that there's that thing when she suddenly decides she's going to go and. She, you know, there's all these terrible things going on, and she sort of says to to Joe, oh, I, "I just thought I'd go to the, I just thought I'd go and dig and have a look." And and he, as he's essentially like, "What, what are you talking about? This is a ridiculous way to behave." Which it is, but it's meant to be the beginnings of. She is very slowly becoming susceptible mm. to to the to to what's going on in a way that he can't really 
see and, and I think she plays that in an in obvious way that is perhaps confusing for the audience so maybe not the best decision but I think it's kind of interested and interesting and, and, and valuable um, you know, I agree yeah. you know, I, I, I think she's great um, we haven't talked about Margaret Tyzak, who is she's brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. because she's Margaret Tyzak and she was always brilliant in everything. Um, very unlike Barbara, a very unsatisfactory death scene for her, though, where she just dies while crashing the car. Yeah, it's quite it's slowly. It's very grim. It's very grim. But again, I suppose it's the it's part of the atmosphere of the sort of she has no. There's nothing else to do with her. She has to, rather than stand next to Quatermass for the next for the next episode she 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 is just I mean, dispatched I, I suppose I suppose it's meant to raise the stakes mm. um but that but... that's pretty ruthless isn't it it's a it's a harsh world though isn't it i just i don't i don't mind narratively i don't mind narratively her dying it's it's effective i just think it's poorly done she right. yeah she softly crashes the the land rover underneath wembley falls forward and is suddenly dead um even though she's wearing a seatbelt and by all means, break your nose on the on the, on the, on, the, on on the steering wheel, but it's a it's an unsatisfactory maybe, death. I don't I don't I don't know this, but maybe I don't know. We'll look this up after this is recorded, and if I'm talking absolute nonsense, we, we can just we can trim it. it. But maybe maybe that's maybe her dying in when the car crashes is a compromise between she can't get she, she's. She would be dead in a few minutes anyway, because everything in that area is wiped out um, by the by the beam from the sky, isn't it? Mm. Maybe killing her in the car crash is a way of making clear that she's dead, rather than having her eaten by the machine if she's trapped. Maybe it's a thing of, you know, Quatermass can't leave her, you know. Whereas mm. if he, she's dead, he can. You know, there's sort of it's not very satisfactory, but it feels like yeah. there's a wrinkle there. Birdcast was presented by John Deere and me, Howard David Ingham. Our engineer was Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening. Yeah.